This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. As the sun comes up, as the moon goes down, these happy notions creep around. It makes me think long ago. I was brought into this life, a little lamb, a little lamb, courageous, stumbling, fearless was my middle name, but somewhere there I lost my another scintillating Christian Humanist podcast. This week I'll be your host. I'm David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. Uh, with me this week, like all of the the other ones, except the ones when I'm not here because I'm teaching classes in January, uh, is Nathan Gilmore, assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College and recently coronated doctor. How are you, Nathan? I am doing well. I'm tired. Uh, we're in the middle of producing the literary magazine we're in the middle of getting senior research projects on their way to their final stage so lots of work this time of year but i'm feeling pretty good cool good times or i should i probably should have said hooded there you go but, there you go but you haven't been hooded yet so yeah right right i and 90s movies jokes go ahead and make them if you gotta <laughs> uh, um Boy, in the hood. Anyway, sorry. Okay. The 90s were a long time ago, Nathan. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> not, not for Nathan, who still lives there. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I'm not living in the 90s. Uh, also is um, Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, Michael? I'm pretty good. How are you? Uh, decent. Did y'all get any of that, any of that winter weather? Uh, yeah, we must have ago. gotten four inches, which is now melting because it's above freezing again. But the power went out here at Crown um, mm. for a couple hours. Yeah, we got a tornado south of us, so you know that it was my first official Kansas twister. And enjoy which... and get used to it. When I lived in Omaha, <laughs> we had one basically every day in April. Hey, I mean, it got to where you just didn't take note of it anymore <laughs> because there were so many of them. <laughs> Yeah, after a while, you're just numb. <laughs> but in Omaha, that gets made up for by the really nice June, which is, you know, in the mid-70s. Oh, that is nice. I don't know what it's uh, like in Kansas in June, though. It's probably hotter. Yeah, I think it, I think a good bit hotter. You're going to get that hot wind blowing up from the southwest. I think it has a name, but I don't know what that name is. Oh, well. But... That's neither here nor there. We're not here to talk about weather. We're here to talk, well, books and theology and philosophy and pop culture and whatever other things 
our, our shtick. Uh, but before that, we've got uh, some housekeeping. Have we got any uh, any feedback on the last episode or the last few episodes? Because we're always we're always recording before uh, any reaction to the most recent one has really uh, coalesced. We got several comments on the blog about the last episode. Someone who said he couldn't relate to any discussion of humility. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what it was, but it made me laugh. I think he said. I think he said he liked the song, though. Yeah, I, I think. I, I think it might have been our our psychology professor friend Charles. I don't think it was because I wouldn't remember. Oh, you don't? Charles. Okay, okay. Maybe it was. I don't know. You can go to our blog and look, listener. Are we? Di- are we deflating the gentleman's name by no, it uh, was, uh, ego by forgetting his name? It, it, it was Paul. Yeah. He was also another regular commenter. So right. I'm, my apologies to Paul right. and to Charles. Um, we also got an email from a guy named Guy. <laughs> he said that he just listened to our triptych on Richard Weaver and he enjoyed it very much. I don't know if he is a composition teacher or if maybe that that series of episodes is more interesting to the non-professional than I thought it was, but he has some uh, comments that we probably don't have time to go into here about Weaver. And then he, he he did bring up something about our Calvinism episode, which I think was, what, number two? Yeah, yeah, it was very early. It was back in 09. He said, there's something Man. I didn't understand when you were talking about predestination. One of you, I, that would be me, I believe, said that it made a lot more sense if you roll it back to creation. When I try that thought experience, I end up with a mechanical unwinding of God's will from the creation. Doesn't that sound like deism? I'm not sure if it would sound like deism, because from my understanding, deism is God kind of setting the universe in motion, then letting it run and stepping back. And and uh, the the way I, the way I understand the moment of creation and predestination, it would not keep him from intervening. Although I guess you could turn it into a sort of deism. Mm-hmm. Then he asked, does God reside within time? If he has to make an irrevocable decision about how everything will play out at the moment of creation, then it certainly seems like it. But God is not bound by time, right? So in some sense that humans can't understand, he is still in the act of creation, and every other act that we experience only temporally. I'm pretty sure C.S. Lewis talks about this in one of his books. It might not prove anything, but it should certainly give us pause when we talk about anything that smacks of time in relation to God. And I think that's actually a, a good point. That that uh, I, I may have made that statement too simply, that that in fact God's relationship to time is something more complicated than than we can make easy statements about. Hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, the when I read that before I came into the name C.S. Lewis, I was thinking Boethius, but you know the, <laughs> you know, well, I mean Lewis is one of the great popularizers of Boethius, just like yeah, Howard Watts is great. Doesn't the other. Yeah, Howard Wass is a great popularizer of John Howard Yoder, so I mean, you know, it's it's all good, man. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, he, it, make, it makes me think of this thing uh, Frederick Buechner said, who's a great popularizer of Karl Barth. Uh-huh. He says that us theorizing about God and predestination is a little like an isosceles triangle trying to understand the pyramid of chaos. Yeah. Which is probably good advice for everybody. Anyway, um, Guy writes more than that, but that's that's the parts I wanted to discuss on the air. Mm-hmm. Thank you for writing in, Guy. I hope you keep listening and eventually get to this episode several years down the road. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> he did say he listens more quickly than he writes. So, Okay, there you go. Very good, very good. Uh, we also got an email from Chris Huntington, who is a friend of my dad. Uh, they taught together there at the uh, Indiana Correctional Facility in Plainfield, Indiana. 
Uh, Chris now lives, and Chris, if I get this wrong, I believe you have moved from Hong Kong to mainland China. If I've reversed that, please write to me again and let me know. Uh, but he just wrote and uh, thanked me personally for the review of his novel, Mike Tyson Slept Here. Uh, th- that review is on the blog. Uh, I encourage you listeners to uh, go check that out, not only because it's set in my hometown of Plainfield, Indiana, and not only because the main character is called Brant Gilmore, uh, but also because, I mean, it's just a fine novel in its own right. So go back on the blog, search for the name Huntington. You'll be able to read that review. Mm. And some people apparently took us up on uh, our, our invitation to suggest more sidekick types. We won't go into all of them, but there's been a uh, a, a, a flurry of suggestions on the show notes for, for the sidekick episode. Right, which always happens. Hong Kong Fooey, which I, I'm going to now gleefully point out that I am too young to have ever seen. and this happens every time we do a pop culture episode i mean inevitably in the hour and 15 minutes we dedicate to it we're not going to hit anything like a representative sample so keep writing in listeners because the more you add the more thoughts that we can have together yeah yay absolutely all right but turning from from the 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 fun of sidekicks and fan feedback and all that sort of thing. We must now turn to the, well, at least a, a brief but grim time of remembrance for uh, listeners. If you remember from the conclusion of our last episode, today we're talking about courage because to, uh, the day on which this, uh, this uh, episode post will be the, the anniversary of the fall of the Alamo. Um, if you, well, used to be, I guess, if you were if, if you were American, you knew the story. I don't know. I don't know the status that this particular uh, event has in uh, the the history one gets in middle school these days. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, it was a an important story. The story of uh, how these outnumbered Texans were attacked by the. Uh, the you know the the army of of Santa Ana from Mexico, and you know for a long time held off the siege and eventually uh, were were defeated and fell almost to a man. Um, of course, I probably knew the story and it connected to it more because one of its main characters, Davy Crockett, was someone who I always end up having myself associated with, particularly since. You know, adults in my in my family and in my sphere would always sing the Davy Crockett song from the Disney series <laughs> at at me as a child. So I always kind of associated with Davy Crockett. Um, and uh, later on, I found out about Bowie Knives, and so Jim Bowie, who was who was also at the Alamo, not David Bowie, right. But, <laughs> Um, though That's I always something want, entirely different. <laughs> yeah, I, I always wanted a movie version in which David Bowie played Jim Bowie, but I don't know that that's ever going to happen. As, as a cross-dressing spaceman? It, maybe. <laughs> I, maybe. <laughs> um, my point being uh, that this is something, this is a story that lodged in my imagination, and it's uh, when I think of the word courage, when I think of the concepts of, of valor and fortitude and all of those kind of uh near synonyms, 
the Alamo is a, is a narrative that springs to my mind. And I think, you know, for most people, when they think of courage, when they want to define courage, what springs to mind is not so much a definition as a series of stories. Mm-hmm. So, um, I guess in, in, in memory of the Alamo and perhaps to think a little bit more carefully about, uh, about this virtue that what, for me, that story evokes, Let's turn to other things. Um, you know, as I said, courage was shown to me as a, as a child through stories, uh, but especially Bible stories. Uh, we could cite lots of these. There's another pretty famous one that also has a David in it that, that I was attached to as a kid, but I'm not going to focus on that one. That'd be a little too self-indulgent. Um, instead, I'd like to look at the commission of Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. So I'm going to pitch this one to you, Michael. Um, what is God demanding of Joshua when he commands him to be strong and courageous? Well, we should point out that um, Joshua is the leader of the Israelites, at least in part and perhaps only, because he'd already proved his courage in an earlier incident. Mm. Astute readers will remember that uh, at one point the Israelites are supposed to move in, I, I believe it's to Canaan, Mm-hmm. And they send up some spies, and Joshua and Caleb are two of them. And most of the spies come back saying they couldn't take the people who live in the land. I believe they were giants. Mm. And uh, We would be as grasshoppers to them. And Joshua and Caleb said, well, yeah, we can because God's on our side and we can do it. And so Joshua and Caleb were the only people from that generation of Israelites who were allowed to enter into the promised land. So Joshua mm-hmm. is the leader uh at least partially and perhaps solely because of that incident. So he is he has already proved his courage. And in this case, it seems that courage is something that is built on faith in God. So God tells him in the section you mentioned, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. So it seems like courage, at least at this point in the Hebrew Bible, is all about trusting God's promises. And mm. that seemed to have been a rather difficult thing to do, perhaps understandably, when you're led out into the desert, when your people have been slaves for generations. Um, but, I mean, as we all know, there's this pattern of unfaith and disbelief among the Israelites in the desert. And so Joshua has to break that pattern. He has to show his courage by trusting in the promises of God. And, of course, it's also bound up with obeying the law of Moses, which that is really the precondition of God's protection of Joshua and the Israelites. So, of course, obeying the law was faith for people uh, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible. And, uh, you know, that changes in the New Testament. But, uh, yeah, so for Joshua, courage is about ha- having faith in God and keeping the law. Mm-hmm. Have you guys ever heard a sermon on this particular text that points out how many times God says that? Well, not to my knowledge, but that doesn't mean I haven't. Okay. I, I think I, ca- I can remember at least three or four. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it's kind of a preacher trope. <laughs> um, yeah, God keeps saying, be strong and courageous, which, you know, which uh, I, uh, uh, the sermons I heard always uh, used to, to suggest that uh, perhaps Joshua was not feeling terribly courageous at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's good. That's good, Michael. Um, I, you know, it, that it doesn't mean 
you know, put on your sword or exclusively put on your sword, but put on your sword and dive in because, because God has said, uh, victory will come. Do you have anything you want to add to that, Nathan? Uh, only, I mean, a, a little bit of linguistic curiosity. This is one of those verbs in Hebrew that is a stative verb. So in other words, uh, where DC talk told us back in the late eighties that love is a verb, uh, in this case, brave is a verb. Uh, so in other words, you know, uh, when we say courage as a one word exclamation, uh, we are implying a verb of being or a verb of possession, uh, elliptically, uh, for the Hebrews, there wouldn't even be an ellipsis there. It is simply a verb. It is, uh, brave. And I guess, you know, the, uh, the transitive English verb, you know, brave this struggle is Mm. something roughly analogous, but this is an intransitive standalone verb. So it's one of those things where, again, you know, uh, I always like to point out that, you know, the structure of our language is also the structure of our imagination. That's a little Wittgensteinian bit. And this is one of the cases where it's certainly the case. There is no adjective in that sentence, be courageous. It's simply be courageous. (laughs) (laughs) it's it's telling him something to do not something to become um it's somewhere in between there it's it's a range of concepts that you know english structure doesn't really allow for comfortably okay neat yeah grammar never taught you anything there you go who said that (laughs) i i i don't know that person all my students in my grammar class (laughs) oh well there you go that's that's not true uh, well, Nathan, I'm going to return last week's favor and pitch a Thomas question at you. There you go. Um, I know that Thomas inherited Aristotle's thinking about virtues, um, mm-hmm. including the one that Thomas would have called fortitudo. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to assume that he didn't just render Aristotle into medieval Latin. So what did the angelic doctor do with the philosopher about fortitudo? Well, first of all, it would be impossible to render the Greek in a straightforward manner because the Greek term Andres or Andrea uh, indicates manliness. Uh, and, you know, that, that comes to us in the Italian virtu that Machiavelli is so concerned with. The Latin here, uh, fortitudo, derives instead from the more abstract concept of strength. Uh, so fortitudo is strength in the face of sudden circumstance. Uh, Thomas maintains that the true forms of fortitude are always in the face of the sudden onset of possible death. Uh, What makes Thomas so interesting, though, is that you're right, he does inherit Aristotle's uh, conceptions alongside Cicero's conceptions, because, of course, Cicero wrote a fair bit about philosophical virtues. Uh, But he realizes that within the Christian tradition that the military fortitude ultimately must take second place to the fortitude of the martyr. Uh, so, you know, while he isn't, he remains an Aristotelian and a Ciceronian, and he says that the fortitude of the soldier is still a valid and a good form of fortitude. Uh, he ultimately spends more time on uh, the fortitude of the martyr. Now, uh, fortitude is one of the four cardinal virtues in its own right. We discussed those four cardinal virtues along with the three theological virtues last time. Uh, and I, I'm gonna, I, I do an idiosyncratic translation of them, David, so it's going to be a little bit different from yours. 
Uh, what fortitude, justice, uh, temperance, and wisdom, and then the mm-hmm. three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that you know, again, remaining within that Aristotelian framework, uh, he does reach back to the patristics and says that even within martyrdom, those people who are daring. And that, that's the way that the uh, newadvent.org translation renders it. I'm not nearly enough of a Latin reader to contest that. Uh, but daring, in other words, going in and facing danger without a reasoned contemplation of the danger that is prior to it. Now, that, that doesn't mean that you have to contemplate the particular moment, because like I said, fortitude is always in the face of sudden danger. But someone who really doesn't have the wisdom to understand his own mortality in Thomas's formula isn't really exhibiting fortitude so much as daring or brashness. Mm. Uh, so again, you know, as with humility, like we talked about last week, uh, fortitude is one of those virtues that is very complex. It is rooted in, uh, definite human actions and definite stories within the Christian tradition. Uh, and ultimately, uh, it is a wonderful synthesis, as are all of Thomas's discussions of virtue, of classical and Christian categories, narratives, symbols, all those sorts of things. So, uh, David, is there anything you would add to that account of Thomistic fortitude? No, I think you've done. I think you've done a, an, an able job with that, um, and you've raised something that I want to uh, that I want to bring into the conversation next, which is the idea that. Uh, Thomas does see a need to balance um, and uh, a view of uh, a view of courage that that came out of the classical world, um, you know, with the balancing warriors with with martyrs. Um, but I imagine that if we if we went back to Cicero and then back to Aristotle, that when they're when they're having these discussions of 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 courage they they themselves are getting notions of that virtue from their own culture um that have have more to do with epic poetry than they have to do with philosophical um treatises um you know that epic you know the epic has as much to do with inculcating definitions of virtue as those kinds of texts that we've already talked about and we can't cover everything um so I've I've sort of arbitrarily selected, well, not entirely arbitrarily selected the Iliad. It's a bit more arbitrary that I select the Beowulf, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, Michael, uh, if we're shifting to the Iliad, um, what does Homer show of, show us of courage, and you know how is this, you know, d- does this shape the kind of thing I guess that would have been Aristotle's raw material for for talking about it. Well, the dominant mode of courage in the Iliad, at least among the major players, seems to me to be courage in the face of absurdity, because the Trojan mm-hmm. War is an absolute farce, right? It it takes place over a stupid issue that the strongest men on both <laughs> sides of the war seem to know is a stupid issue. They seem to know it's a farce. So you have Hector reprimanding his brother Paris for dishonor and cowardice. Paris is, of course, the guy who began the whole war by taking Helen away from Menelaus, and whether she wanted to go or whether he kidnapped her is kind of up to whoever's telling the story. Those blasted Frenchmen. 
<laughs> right. So yeah, Hector reprimands Paris <laughs> for for his cowardice. And then in book nine, when Achilles is brought back into the battle, he questions the morality of war. He says, "Why should we fight this? Don't the uh, don't the Trojans have every right to?" love their wives the way we love ours and don't they you know don't they have every right to live that we have and yet courage is still a virtue and it's perhaps the highest virtue i mean when you have a story that's about war it's going to have to be the highest virtue or almost have to be the highest virtue but the greatest courage in that poem doesn't belong to hector and it doesn't belong to achilles it actually belongs to priam Mm. Hmm. Um, okay as we all know Achilles kills Hector, drags his body behind his chariot. And that night, Priam sneaks out of Troy and approaches Achilles' tent. And he begs him for Hector's body. And and this puts him, obviously, in grave danger. And he does it for the honor of his family and for the love he has for his dead son. Um, It it is obviously the most moving scene in the poem. I'm, I'm not sure if another one even comes close. But it's also, I think, the greatest example of courage in, in, in the poem. And, and so the real hero, if courage is the highest virtue, is Priam, not, uh, not Hector and certainly not Achilles. And what's interesting about that scene to me is it manages to both subvert Greek courage. It says that maybe the strongest people aren't the bravest. Mm. But at the same time, it affirms courage as a virtue. You walk away admiring Priam for what he's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though, you know, I I I thought, you know, I thought you were going to go for Hector. <laughs> Hector Hector is Hector is the noblest character in a book probably. Okay. Um but I I I think the the greatest single act of bravery is this one. Yeah. Because Hector yeah, can defend I, himself. I I think I'm going to agree. Um though I mean, Hector went to fight Achilles, and I mean, could could anyone even come close to claiming realistically that Achilles is courageous? Really? No, no, <laughs> no not, not really. I mean, he he's. I mean, he's, he's too like Iron Man. To be courageous. He's too what? Petulant to be cre- courageous. Well, <laughs> yeah, he's petulant, but he's also invincible. Not quite. Except for this, well, except for this one weak spot that that nobody knows about. Now that that's something that I've always worried, wondered about. Rather, uh, I mean, since that legend, as far as I can tell, arises in the textual record after the Iliad, uh, w- w- okay. would that be would that have been part of Homer's conception of Achilles? And obviously, I mean, we don't have any way to confirm that, but. When I yeah. read the Iliad, I mean, I don't think of Achilles as the iron-skinned immortal that you get in later legends. Okay. I see. And but I that got might to the just Iliad be me. After. I don't know. He's Batman, well, I got, I, not Superman? Yeah. <laughs> well, that, 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 that's a good point because I, I, didn't, I, I didn't get to the Iliad in, uh, until I'd gotten to Edith Hamilton first. And so uh-huh. I kind of knew that um, – you know that that sort of enforced consistency Achilles, that sort of received tradition, 20th century tradition Achilles, um, right, with all the right. stories about well, his and, origin and, and, and his death, and those aren't included in the Iliad. Yeah, and I did too, David. Until I was in a conversation 
uh, at Milligan College as an undergrad, and and someone made the assertion, you know, I think if Hector had actually stood toe-to-toe with Achilles, he could have taken him. Mm. And it occurred to me, okay, you know, is there anything in the text that I could point to to, you know, uh, gainsay that claim? And I couldn't think of anything. That's a good point. I, 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 hmm. So listeners, I mean, if you know of anything, you know, that would help us to settle this, you know, by all means, write in and tell us. But that's that's a question that I've had for about 15 years now, and I've got no way to answer it. But even if he, <laughs> even if he's not invincible, he lacks a certain nobility of character. Oh, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. No, I no. mean, he's, you know, he's he, he's Barry Bonds, whether it's before or after the steroids. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, so if and yes, if Achilles listening... is my favorite figure to compare professional athletes to. <laughs> that yes, that makes sense. <laughs> so yeah, so if you're listening and you are John Mark Reynolds, um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> right in and let us know because uh, I may need to seriously revise my opinion of Achilles. Um, not my opinion that he's a jerk, but <laughs> but my opinion that he's a human tank. Um, you know, just mercilessly allowing frail, you know, you know, men of flesh to break themselves against his implacable, his mighty however. frame. Yes, that kind of thing. You know, he's he's like this sort of like ironclad ship in the in the middle of a, a naval battle of with canoes. <laughs> we haven't talked about this in a while, but how bad was that movie Troy? By the way, oh, I still have not seen it. Oh, it's bad. <laughs> it's the it's the well, Iliad without the gods. Oh well, yeah, you've told me about it. I just haven't seen it yet. I I, I still don't see how you get the Iliad without the gods. You don't. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, they, they they could have. I I would have respected some kind of euhemerist attempt to imagine a sort of. Uh, uh, a plausible historical um, kind of scenario that could have later been, you know, reimagined as the as the the source text for right, right. Iliad and other the, Trojan. The, the, Tro- the Trojan War as Schliemann imagined it. Right, but that isn't what they did. I mean, they they left all of these all of these moments in there that in that in the poem the gods are the agents of. But if you remove the god, the agency of the gods, the actions become inexplicable, utterly inexplicable. Well, it, and, and that was the summer of the crappy demythologized epic because that uh, that version of Arthur oh. came out that same year. I have not seen that either. Even worse. <laughs> mm. Well. Worse, worse for me because they actually had started with a decent, some decent source material, and then they just went Hollywood with it, and somehow managed to import explosions into. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you got to be kidding me! Yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I'm. This is going to become a conversation about Arthur, and I and I don't want to take it in the in the in the in the Britain direction. We, we got to do an episode at some point about terrible cinematic adaptations of classic books okay yeah i look for that I, toward I, the I, end of the semester listener when when uh, we don't have time to prepare actual episodes there you yeah, go well, 
yeah, we promise an incredibly grumpy, but also probably entertaining episode. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to go British. I'm going to go Anglo-Saxon, Nathan. Um, I'm going to pitch what? the Beowulf. <laughs> what? Um, I'm going to pitch the Beowulf question at you. I mean, you are a hair away from adding professor of the, the professor of Anglo-Saxon feather to your cap. So, you know, which is pretty sweet. Um, and I'm going to throw Tolkien in there too, because by golly, am I self-indulgent today? Uh, <laughs> Tolkien has said that there's a particular type of sort of follow the Alamo style courage. Um, that's one of the central themes of Beowulf. Um, can you bring, you know, kind of explicate more? What is he talking about in that article? Sure, sure. Uh, the article is uh, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics. It's uh, one of the more famous articles really by anyone about Beowulf. Uh, and his argument, which I'm going to complicate after I summarize it, because uh, <laughs> that's what I do, uh, argues that when you look at uh, Northern European mythology, you've got a, a basic difference in structure from Mediterranean mythologies. Uh, the main difference is that in Mediterranean, which is to say Mycenaean, Greek, Roman, uh, to some extent Dantean, but of course that gets into the Christian era, so that's a different sort of beast. Uh, in those mythologies, you've got gods uh, which are inherently capricious. So in other words, it's uh, you can't really call Zeus and Mars and Hermes and Venus good or bad in any unqualified sense. It really matters. Um, what matters more, I should say, is uh, whether you happen to be on their turf at the wrong moment. Uh, and that's why, you know, the Greeks give us a particular form of drama that we call tragedy, because tragedy is what happens when you happen to be on the wrong side of a certain arbitrary line at the wrong time. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's uh, it, it's not just in the dramatic tragedy, of course. You can see this operating in the Iliad uh, that Michael just talked about. In the northern mythologies, uh, and you know, by northern I'm using that loosely because we can also include the South German, and I'm going to mispronounce this, David, but the the Nibelbung. <laughs> Nibelungenlied. Yeah, that. <laughs> 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 the Dwarf King. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. That's what I call it because I can't pronounce that blasted word. Yeah. Uh, Ring of the Nibelungs. Yeah. Yes, the one that Wagner wrote, wrote all those operas about. But uh, in that mythology, in Norse mythology, in Beowulf, uh, in the Eddas, in the sagas, you have a conception of the gods in which the gods are ultimately good, but they are not all powerful. Mm. Uh, now, I am... No, I'm not going to resist a, a little swipe at process theology here because it seems like this is the sort of theology that they're interested in doing, uh, where God <laughs> is ultimately good but ultimately doesn't have the ability to act unilaterally to crush evil the way that the Psalms call on God to do so. Uh, but in these mythologies, Tolkien argues, you've got forces of chaos, whether they're called dragons, monsters, giants, trolls, uh, that are ultimately entirely without any redeeming feature, no matter who you are, uh, but who ultimately are more powerful than the combined forces of men and gods. And so courage for the northern mythologies, he argues, uh, consists 
not necessarily entrusting in the almighty providence of a single God, the way we talked about with Joshua, uh, but rather in standing against the forces of chaos and destruction, in spite of the fact that ultimately they're going to win. And if you consider the ending of Beowulf, which we discussed back in the Sidekicks episode, uh, you get really about the dreariest end to any epic, and I realize calling it an epic is a... is a Problematic. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't going to say problematic because <laughs> that word's overused, but... Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's not exactly a true assessment of things in a literary genre sense, but I call it an epic anyway because I've got no better word for it. Um, but the the ending is just very, very dreary. I mean, Beowulf dies. Uh, you get the intimation that within a generation or two, the Yayots are going to be destroyed and, you know, they're going to be uprooted and driven from their land. Uh, it really isn't the sort of calm domestic ending that you associate with the end of the Odyssey or with the promise of empire ending you associate with the Iliad, it's more of a, yeah, good fight, boys. Now everything's going to fall apart. <laughs> yeah, so now the, the reason that I want to qualify this just a little bit is that if you look at uh, not the ending of the Iliad, which Michael uh, so nicely laid out for us, but the midsection of the Iliad, one of the great scenes in my imagination is the scene in which the... Achaean armies, the Greek-speaking, well, I guess they're all Greek-speaking, but the people from the Greek islands and from the peninsula that we call modern Greece uh, come to realize that Zeus Almighty, the, the most powerful being in the poem, the one that not even the gods can resist, uh, has set his face against them in favor of the Trojans. And mm. their response to that is to take up their shields, form up ranks, and advance. Uh, and I mean, I, I, I think that, that that sense that human courage is marching forth in the face of inevitable doom is something that is not unknown to Homeric epic. Because uh, like I said, it's right there in the middle of the Iliad. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, in both of those, what, uh, what strikes us in the Christian